Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Luke 22, verses 24 through 38. And we're really nearing the culmination of Luke's Gospel at this point. Everything is reaching the apex, and we're on the very cusp of the culmination, Jesus' crowning moment, if you will, the crucifixion itself. And so before we jump into the details of 22 24 through 38, let's at least set it in its context. Because this little speech is a little bit challenging at times, a little difficult. It's sort of a get-your-head-in-the-game sort of speech. In the preceding section, Jesus just shared how he's going to be broken and bleed for them and for all people, and how that dying will really establish the promised and long-awaited new covenant. But at the same time, he's warned them how one of them at the table is going to betray him to those who want to kill him. Well, then in, immediately the apostles begin to argue over who it is that's going to do that, who it is that's going to betray him. And that bickering about who's going to betray him then leads to further self-interested bickering about who's the greatest. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that, like, like, we're really at the climactic moment, and you guys have got to get your head in the game. You've, you've, you've got to get this figured out. He knows what's coming, and he knows what it's going to mean for them. He knows that conflict and hostility and difficulty are on the horizon, and they're going to struggle, especially at first, and they need to get their head in the game and be prepared for what's coming. And so what happens here in Luke 22, 24 through 38 is really pr- trying, to, trying to just help them realize the situation has changed. Here's what happens. Verse 24. Now, a dispute also developed among them as to which of them was regarded as being the greatest. Remember, in the preceding section, they are debating about who's the one that's going to betray Jesus, and they're all denying it's them, not me. I wouldn't do that. You would do that. They're bickering over all that. In that same moment, their bickering then leads to a- another debate about who's the greatest among us. Which one do you think people actually think is the greatest? And so now they're arguing about, you know, like, I certainly wouldn't betray Jesus because look who I am and look how faithful I am and look who, hello, everyone knows I'm the, the best, I'm the greatest, right? So they're debating, debating about who's the greatest. What I find so tragically ironic about that is that Jesus had just told them how he's going to pour out his life for them to establish the new covenant. And they end up arguing among themselves about who's the greatest. What a tragic irony that is. And just as a bit of an aside, this is one of those things that um, not only makes the Bible so true to life, but I think it also makes the Bible credible. The, The biblical stories, the biblical writers, many of whom are writing about themselves, don't whitewash themselves. The apostles aren't made to look good, right? Their flaws are shown in this case and other cases for all to see. And and that just makes the Bible credible. They're not trying to, you know, advance their reputation. They're not trying to puff themselves up. They're not trying to make themselves look great. They're shown for who they really are flaws and all. And so here the apostles are debating about who's the greatest. Verse 25, 
And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. That's the world's way of being in charge. Control and praise. Domineer equals lord it over. That's the control piece, right? They lord it over. They try to control. They boss people around. They, they tell people what to do. They just leverage their authority to put people in their place and control them. Control and praise. Benefactors. Notice he says those who have authority over them, those who have positions of authority, who are in charge, who are leaders of various kinds, are called benefactors. A benefactor was somebody who they, right, they were like a patron. They gave you money or they gave money to a project. They gave money to some sort of city endowment or something so that uh, that project could get completed. And then they were given this great title of benefactor. And in a society like theirs where reciprocation was a huge deal, everyone then had to honor them and reciprocate their, their greatness by showing them honor and calling them benefactor. They want people to notice them and praise them. But that's not Jesus' way. Control and praise aren't the way uh, to be in charge in Jesus' kingdom. So look at verse 26. But, Jesus continues speaking, but it's not this way for you. Rather, the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But, Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. So being great or being in charge or being the leader, that's not the problem. It's how you are those things that really matters. In as Jesus just assumes a positive answer here, right? Like the younger typically served the older. That's just the way it worked. Servants typically took care of the leaders, right? That was their whole job. Their job was to serve the food at the meal, make sure everything was taken care of in the house. So servants serve the leaders, youngers serve the older. But Jesus says, let's change that up. If you are in charge, then be that, be in charge with the demeanor and bearing of a servant, as if you were lower down the social scale. Don't be all high and mighty. Don't exalt yourself and puff yourself up. Lower yourself. And if you're given a position of responsibility, if you're given the role of a leader, then be so with the demeanor and the bearing of a servant. Now, in that context, then, Jesus actually reassures the apostles that, indeed, they will have key roles to play, but that they need to play those roles in the very manner that he just said. Since he himself is among them as one who serves, and since they are followers and thus imitators of him, then they will be given key roles, but they need to carry it out the very same way that Jesus has carried out his role as Messiah, that is, as one who serves. So here's what he says in verse 28. You are the ones who have stood by me in my trials. You've been there with me through all the ups and downs of his ministry, all the hardships, the oppositions, and the challenges. You've stood with me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, 
I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. In other words, you're going to be like in close association with me. You will have positions of honor. You will have positions of like kind of prominent positions in my kingdom. And you will, he says, sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus, in other words, will give them positions of honor and key responsibilities, but that doesn't mean they can gloat or boast or assert themselves the way the world does. No, they need to lower themselves the way Jesus does. So they can quit posturing. They can quit trying to you know, debate their greatness. Their position is granted by Jesus. Notice that. He says, I grant you that you're going to have these positions. It's granted by Jesus as a gift of his, right? Like he's going to honor them with that. So they don't have to fight and vie for their position. They can carry out their position the way Jesus has carried out his position as a servant with that low view about that. Now, in view of what's about to go down and Jesus knows what's about to go down, Jesus really knows they're not all they think they are anyhow. Here they are debating about their greatness, and Jesus knows how they're actually going to respond in the moment of crisis. It's just hours uh, into the future. And so he knows that, and he's praying for them. So look at what he says to Simon. In this moment, they're all around the table, posturing, debating their greatness, right? Talking about how awesome they are. And Jesus has a word for them that he speaks directly to Simon, but it involves all of them. Look what he says, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now, if we don't listen closely, we can misunderstand what Jesus is saying. The reason for that is the you, when he says Satan has demanded to sift you, we could think he's only talking to Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you. But that you in Greek is actually plural. In other words, it's you all. So Simon, uh, so Jesus is addressing his words to Peter, Simon Peter, but he's speaking about all the apostles. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you all, all you apostles like wheat. He's wanted to sift you and try to remove the wheat from the, char the chaff, all of you. Now, in the context of their arguing, I can imagine Peter asserting his dominance. He's a loud voice, a big personality. And so perhaps that was, that's why Jesus addresses him, because Peter's such a strong leader. Satan has begged to sift all you guys, all you apostles, but Simon... Jesus is going to say to him, Simon, I need you to do something. I need you, instead of asserting yourself, I need you to help your brothers here around the table. So you need to use your strong position and your loud voice, not to assert yourself, but to serve your brethren here around the tables because Satan's at work among all of you to sift all of you. That's what's going on here. So look what he says. From you all, all you apostles, to you singular, you, Simon, here's what he says, verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail and you, when you have turned back, will strengthen your brothers. Notice what he says. He's talking to Simon. Satan has demanded to sift all the apostles. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith won't fail. You're going to be tested um, and it's going to be hard 
and you're going to make a mistake, right? But that you're going to turn back. And when you do that, Simon, I've prayed for you to strengthen your brothers, to use your voice, use what you've learned, use your leadership skills for the sake of the rest of your brother apostles. And then in verse 33, Peter responds to Jesus' words by saying, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And so once again, Peter has this overinflated view of himself. We know what's about to happen. So does Jesus. Jesus is about to tell him what's about to happen. So Peter hears Jesus' words about Jesus praying for him, that he's not going to fail, that he'll turn back, that he'll help his brothers. And Peter's like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about because I'm ready to go to prison and death with you. And he has this overinflated view of his ability to be faithful to Jesus. Jesus tells him, ah, not so much, Peter. Look at verse 34. But Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. So Peter, you think you're all that? You think you're all powerful? You think you're so great? It's not the case. You're actually going to deny that you know me three times before the rooster crows uh, towards the end of the night. And so, Peter, you need to understand it's going to be really hard and you're going to screw up big time. But I've prayed for you that you will not fail. And when you've turned back, that you'll strengthen your brothers. So Satan is begging to sift them all. Peter is going to fall and deny Jesus three times. The other apostles need to be strengthened. All of this speaks of conflict, hardship, difficulty. So Jesus next turns to all of them to warn them that the days of popularity are ending and conflict is is about to happen like in the next few hours. But what Jesus says is a little bit confusing and a little bit hard. It was confusing for the apostles then. It's still a little bit confusing as we read it today. Let's walk down through what he says and then we'll try to make sure we sort out exactly what he means. Here's what Jesus says to them. And again, remember, We're in this context of you guys got to get ready because things are going south real quick. Verse 35, he says to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. This is recalling this incident in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus sent out the apostles and he told them, don't take anything extra. You go, you let people take care of you. So that's, he's recalling that incident. And then he says, things are going to change. Verse 36. And he said to them, but now, notice that. In fact, it's a strong contrast in Greek. This isn't just a general kind of connective word. This is Allah, but like, however, strong contrast. Things have changed, but now. And so he says, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, a bag, like a storage bag, right? Whoever has no sword should buy his cloak and buy one. So exactly the opposite of what Jesus had told them in Luke chapter 9, he he tells them here, you guys need to be prepared. Make sure you have money belt. Make sure you have a bag, right? Like make sure you're ready for what's coming because the circumstances are going to change and you're going to be traveling. You're going to be scattering. You need to be ready and you need to be prepared for that. That's the essence of what he's getting at here. That does remind us that 
instructions say like those given to the apostles in Luke chapter 9 are for a specific time and a specific moment. And those things can change. We have to learn to remember that, that not everything that's written in the gospel of Luke is addressed for all time, for all disciples throughout all ages. And so Jesus here is repealing what he said in Luke chapter 9 to them and saying, situations changed, which means your preparation needs to change. Then he goes on in verse 37 and he says, For I tell you uh, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted with wrongdoers, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And so Jesus quotes this text from Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 12, that talks about the suffering servant there in context of Isaiah 53 being numbered with, counted with wrongdoers. And Jesus says, that actually refers to me. Isaiah 53 is talking about me and it has its fulfillment. And specifically in this context, he's highlighting, and I'm going to be treated as a wrongdoer. I'm going to be treated as a criminal. And and that's why the circumstance is changing. That's the idea here. The reason you need to shift the way you're prepared and shift your thinking is because Jesus is now going to be treated as a criminal, which is going to lead to conflict and hostility pretty much immediately. Their response to what Jesus said is, verse 38, look, here are two swords. And Jesus said to them, that's enough. And that last line, that's enough, could be taken. Two swords is enough, although against, you know, a bunch of military force or a bunch of uh, Jewish police force, two swords really isn't enough. So that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And that's why most people take it as Jesus saying, that's enough. Just ending the conversation. Like you guys aren't getting it. You're, you think you're better than you are. You're all high and mighty. You're ready for a fight, you think, and you're not understanding what I'm talking about. So most scholars take that last line where it's just enough as meaning enough of this, enough of this conversation. You guys aren't on the same page exactly with me. We're going to just have to trust it plays out. And he shuts down the conversation. Now, Jesus' words, however, obviously confuse the apostles. Here are two swords, like sell your cloak, buy, buy a sword. And they're like, we got two. And it seems like they're confused. And Jesus' words in this little section have confused a lot of people for a long time, right? Like, and the key question is this, did Jesus mean what he said literally or figuratively? In other words, were they really supposed to sell their cloak and buy swords? Was Jesus advocating like your typical insurrection? That hasn't been what he's advocated all throughout his ministry. It's out of sync with the fact that he's laying down his life for them. And so, doesn't seem like the kind of thing Jesus would say, but remember the disciples are completely confused about all of that up until this moment. And they're saying they have two swords seems to speak of that confusion. And so what is Jesus really trying to communicate? Um, are they supposed to go buy swords or is he saying something else? And to answer that question, I think what we should do is to look at the response of the apostles. The immediate response, obviously, is we have two swords and Jesus seems to shut off the conversation with just enough, right? Then in the next, very next scene, Peter, um, or one of the apostles at least, we're not told exactly who it is here, but we assume it's Peter. Um, then in the very next scene, Peter takes one of those two swords and cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. And Jesus says, stop it. 
am I leading a rebellion? Like, no, that's not my way. So stop it when they do bust out a sword. And Jesus actually heals the ear of the high priest. And then, uh, in, uh, then when you look at the apostles in the book of Acts, they never break out swords and fight. All of that suggests to me that Jesus didn't mean what they first thought he meant and that they finally figured it out. And that's the way most scholars understand this. Most scholars seem to think that Jesus means this in some sort of way figuratively, like he's giving some sort of, as some scholars have said, pep talk type speech before the most critical moment, one that would change the total reality for them. And he's trying to like, Tell them, like, look, conflict is on the horizon. You need to be ready. Rather than arguing amongst yourself and debating your own greatness, get ready for the conflict. That's just two, three, four, five hours ahead. Um, and so what was true at the height of Jesus' popularity, where people are going to welcome them and provide for them, that's no longer going to be true. Jesus is going to be labeled as a lawless one, a brigand, and that's going to put them in danger too. So hardship, difficulty, and violence are coming their way. And that all makes sense, right? Like it makes sense of what we see of the apostles in the book of Acts. I can see all that, but Jesus' words sure don't sound that way just when you listen to him, do they? And so I, I can see how the disciples took him literally. I can see why it's a little confusing. But the main point about his words about money belts and swords is that the situation is about to change, the popularity, the singing of the triumphal entry, all that's about way to give to uh, about ready to give way to conflict and hostility and they need to quit bickering and arguing and posturing and self-promoting and they need to get their head in the game and they need to be ready and all that reminds me how often we're like the apostles how we're all interested in what people think about us and how great we seem to people and then we miss we really miss the grit and the glory of following Jesus the glory of him laying down his life for us, the glory of the kingdom he's called us into and how we get to be a part to play some role in that, however big or small our part is. And we miss the grit that it's going to take to be a true and faithful disciple of his, true and faithful to that kingdom that's marked by self-sacrifice and self-giving love. And so now having the benefit of hindsight, seeing what in the moment of this teaching, the apostles couldn't see, we now see along with them as we look back and we look at the cross and we see, we see the awfulness and yet at the same time the beauty of what's going on on the cross. We see the resurrection. We have the benefit of all this hindsight and we now can welcome all that in and be cross-shaped ourselves and so that we we can live in this world that is opposed to Jesus, has a very different set of values than his kingdom. We can live in this world with that same self-lowering, humility. We can carry out our positions of influence and authority, however big or small, with the kind of self-sacrificial, self-giving love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, the kind that he embodied all throughout his ministry where he acted as a servant. We can lower ourselves to serve others just as Jesus laid down his life and served us.